Never forget that, brother. Appreciate your help. <clears throat> the observant eye would be keenly aware that of the state of our nation and our world. It's an us-them world, is it not? Society has increasingly been divided into two categories, often along social political lines. Friends, foes. Maybe I'm overstating it, but that's what I've been observing. Social media has gone bonkers. There seems to be pervasive antagonization in all that we do. Sadly, intending to be or not, many of us are getting caught up in this antagonization. The sides, friends and foes. That seems to be the day in which we live. Maybe I'm feeling it more than you. Maybe I'm out of touch with reality. That's just what I've been observing. And yet, God's timing is perfect. And God's word is always relevant. And just like a few weeks ago, just after the George Floyd situation that obviously continues to be relevant in all the ways in which we are responding and dealing with that particular issue and that uh, unjust uh, tragedy, uh, I was blown away that I was scheduled to preach on Psalm 133 that week, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. I'm like, God's timely, right? And I, all of God's word is always timely, it's always relevant, it always has something to say. But interestingly enough, I found it Uniquely so. Maybe that's even a wrong statement. Just felt timely, relevant to look at the passage we are in today. It just, it amazes me how the Lord brings these things to our lives. We may think that God's word is, is kind of irrelevant. It's not speaking to us. And yet here we see once again that the word of God is relevant and its timing is perfect. Why are we in Matthew chapter 5, 43 through 48 in June rather than in March? Again, it would have still been timely. But I think uniquely so given the context. Matthew 5, 43 through 48. The question of the morning we must consider is this. As citizens of the kingdom of God. Because remember, Jesus is teaching about the kingdom. About what his followers, those citizens of the kingdom, how they are to live in light of the, uh, the coming of the kingdom. It says, as citizens of the kingdom of God, how are we to treat our enemies or our foes? How are we to treat those around us who are not our friends, but who would be our foes? And what becomes the goal and the motive that Christ calls us to in the way that we treat our enemies. Grab your Bibles, Matthew 5, 43 through 48. Listen to what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor 
and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God abides forever. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. We have the sixth and final antithesis here in this particular section. You go all the way back to verse 20, and again, we've been reminding you of this. Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. A shocking statement for the disciples to hear. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, the super spiritual big dogs of the day, unless your uh, righteousness exceeds theirs, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on in verse 21. You have heard that it was said. Talking about anger. Verse 27. You've heard that it was said. Talking about lust and adultery. It was also said. Talking about divorce. Verse 31. Verse 33. You've heard that it was said. Talking about uh, oaths and telling the truth. Uh, You've heard that it was said regarding anger in verse 38. And now we hear it again. The sixth and final You have heard that it was said, but I'm saying unto you, correcting the distortion and even false teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes that were promoting an insufficient righteousness and confusion about what the law really taught. And so here we have the last one, the sixth one. This section kind of comes to a close here, and we'll be transitioning to another subsection of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. Yes, that is correct, right? Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Yes, when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? What does he say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and what? Quoting Leviticus 19.18, what does he say? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the Pharisees and the scribes hit a bullseye. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. They're correctly teaching this. But in that explicit command, they twisted it because they understood that while they were to love their enemies, they implicitly were being commanded to hate their enemies. Does that make sense? Explicitly, They're told to love your neighbor. Did I say that wrong? Please forgive me. Assurance of pardon. Explicitly told, love your neighbor. Implicitly, hate your enemies. Did it help? I got that look from my wife. It was that moment where you know you said something wrong, man. You know what I'm talking about? I just got that. She's like, 
I don't even know what I said. <laughs> I have no clue. Just, I'm just up here. It's like out-of-body moment. Explicitly, love your, help me out, neighbor. Implicitly, what? Hate your enemies. Jesus saying, that's what you've been taught. That's the way it was understood that you implicitly could love, uh, were to hate your enemies. Right? Love of God, yes. Love of neighbor, but hatred for the enemy. And at this point, this would have been Rome for the people of Israel. The enemies. It's very nationalistic, right? At least on the surface, this was hating Rome, hating Babylon, Assyria, Philistines, Canaanites, Egyptians, hating the national enemies of the people of Israel. That we're to love one another, we're to love our God, love our neighbor, but we're to hate our enemies. But this was also relevant in personal contexts, right? Right? And an enemy is not just national, it can be very personal. It could be anyone that is hostile toward us or anyone that we are hostile toward. Anyone that is estranged in a relationship with us. So this became personal for them. Anyone that you might be in constant conflict with, you could even feel as though they're your enemy. Anyone that you're against, anyone that's against you, from subtle ways to very uh, intense ways, an enemy. Who is this in your life? Somebody said, well, I don't have any enemies. Is that based on a feeling that you have, like you're not mad or frustrated at anyone at this current moment? Maybe that's true. Do you have enemies? Who is this in your life? Who's your enemy? Is it, let me just poke a little bit. Is it, is it the Republicans? Are they your enemies? Is it the Democrats? Is it those that post New York Times articles? They're your enemies? They frustrate you a little bit? They get under your skin? Or maybe it's the New York Post. Which side of the spectrum are you kind of aligning with and therefore marginalizing or, or, or antagonizing the other? Is it those who hashtag all lives matter? Are those your enemies? Or is it those that hashtag black lives matter? Are those your enemies? Who's your enemy? Is it Trump? Is it Pelosi? Is it Biden? Who's your enemy? Is it Andrew Cuomo? Is he your enemy? Who's your enemy? Seems to be the current discourse. Seems to be the flavor, the atmosphere. But to be more personal about it, maybe it's a co-worker. It's out to get you, or vice versa, that you can't wait to see fail. Is it a member of your family? Is it a parent? Is it a child? Your husband, your wife. Isn't it interesting that oftentimes the people that you would think would be most close to us, the, the person you sleep with at night, can actually feel like your enemy? Someone that's against you. Someone that you <coughs> are at enmity with. 
while we may have legitimate reasons to disagree with someone or even be hurt or fearful of or offended by someone, because I'm not here to minimize the experiences that you've had, the question really becomes, how does Jesus call us to relate to these people? Fundamentally, essentially, how are we called to relate to whoever would be our enemy? From a personal to a national, from a political to a social. Who? How are we called to relate to them? He says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbors, hate your enemies. But I say, love your enemies. Radically different. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's the call of Christ. The call of Christ for the citizens of the kingdom that he places on us is that we are not to respond uh, to our enemies with hatred, but we respond with them to them with love. Love for the enemy. What a radical calling on us. Such a high calling on us. The surpassing righteousness in this feels like all too much for me. I have enough problem. Can I just be honest? I have enough problem loving my neighbor. Loving people that, I, that actually do love me. Raise your hand if you understand what I'm talking about. I have a hard enough time loving people that love me. Loving people that are, are, are my neighbor. And now you're telling me, Jesus, that I don't need to just love my neighbor. I have to love my enemy? That's the kind of love in response to those who are against me that you're calling me to? That's the surpassing righteousness? You're right, Jesus. That is far surpassing. And we can feel the weight of this call. Especially if we embrace love the way and understand love the way culture does, right? It's a feeling. Especially if love is a feeling. Man, I got to feel good about my enemies. I got to feel good about those who are rude to me. I'm supposed to conjure up those romantical kind of feelings inside me toward people that can't stand me or always out to get me, that I disagree with, that their opinions just get under my skin. Rah. That was Howard Dean. That was almost Howard Dean. That was close to Howard Dean, wasn't it? Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, they get under your skin. I'm supposed to love them? I'm supposed to feel good about them? No, no, no. No, please, that's a distortion. Again, I'm not telling you to feel bad. That's what I'm saying. Don't get that implicit. But I'm saying that's not what love is at all. That's not what Jesus means when he says love your enemy. Sinclair Ferguson, I think, gives a wonderful definition about what love here is. It is ultimately a decision, he says. It's a decision, a commitment of my will to bring good and blessing to another no matter how I feel. No matter what I feel. It's a decision you make. It's a commitment of your will to act in such a way to bring about good and blessing for your enemy. That's what Jesus is calling us to. That's that word that you might often hear, agape, love. It's a love based on a decision. Not a feeling. Decisive action to bring good and blessing to another. It's like this, Romans 12, right? Verse 20. 
when Paul is instructing the Roman church after 11 chapters of the gospel, here's how you're to live together. He says this, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Don't feel good about him, necessarily. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. You're acting, you're making a decision, a willful decision to act in such a way to bring about good and blessing to their lives. It's practical provision at the very least, biblically. But I think it also expresses itself in the second command that Jesus gives us. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. How do you love your enemy? Well, you act in such a way to bring about good in their life, yes. But you also ask God to act in such a way to bring about blessing in their life. You understand? You see that? It, you see, when we pray, we recognize the source of all blessing and good. That is God. God is the source of all that is good. God is the source of every blessing. And so when we're praying, we're recognizing that he is the source of all that is good. And we're asking him to bless and to do good to those who seek our harm. That's what Jesus is calling his disciples to. That's the surpassing righteousness. It is loving, decisive action. It is prayer that God would do something. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but praying for someone that is driving you insane, who is always coming against you, that seeks to do, your, do you harm, at whatever level that may be, prayer, seeking God on their behalf to bless them, has a way of disarming the hostility in your own heart. Have you ever gone down that road with somebody? Have you ever gone down the road of praying for somebody that you are so frustrated with, who's, who you don't understand why they're coming at you in that particular way? Someone that's on the different side of things, praying for them, for their blessing. Man, it disarms the hostility, doesn't it? I've watched my wife do that over the years, constantly, in her family, in her work. She has been a model to me that when we're frustrated or feeling at enmity with someone, when we're in conflict with someone else, what we do is we pray for them. In some ways, praying for them is praying and crying out to their conversion, for their conversion. Lord, save them. Pour out your mercy and grace in their life and save them because they are so lost in their sin. By the way, that's praying for them, for those who persecute us, who come at us. We're praying for their conversion. Lord, pray that you would protect them and bless them. Pray that you would reveal yourself to them. Pray that they would know your mercy and your goodness. You're praying for them. You're asking for God to bless them. That's the call that the citizens of the kingdom have on them from Jesus. It's a call to love their enemies, a call to act and ask in such a way to bring about blessing in their lives. And again, that's, I think, difficult for us to grasp right now. It, 
It goes against human nature. It's unnatural for us to respond to animosity or persecution in this way. And so I'm just going to be honest, I need some sort of motivation for this. Like something's got to be done to, yeah, okay, I hear it. It's crystal clear. Love your enemies. Make a decision uh, and a commitment in your will to bring about blessing and good to somebody else. I get that. Thank you, Jesus. It's clear as day. But where is the motive? Because it's not in me. Contrary to what some media channels might say and uh, anchors might say, it's not, good is not in me. I do need help. I do need God's help from above. I need that. I wonder if you feel that. So what is the motivation for treating enemies, those that are persecuting us, those that are coming against us in a loving manner, those who disagree with us, those who make us crazy in their opinions? Is it because they will love, if you love them, then they'll love you in return? If you love them, then you'll fix them? If you love them, then you'll feel better? If you love them, then society will improve? Is that the ultimate example, uh, motivation for such response to our enemies? I mean, maybe. Maybe not. Maybe those things do happen as a result of it. But, but that's not the motivation. That's not the goal. Look at what Jesus says. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. There it is. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now please, we have to be very careful here to not misconstrue what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, if you love your enemies, then someday you can become a son of the Father. That is not what Jesus is saying here whatsoever. Don't misconstrue the order. No. The language really denotes resemblance. Representation. It's been, this instruction is given to those who are already citizens of the kingdom. Already blessed with the grace of the Beatitudes. Those who have been already living in the joy and the satisfaction of adoption by faith in Jesus Christ, they have come into a relationship with God the Father where they can call Him rightfully so that my Father in heaven. Understand that this, this, uh, this phraseology from Jesus is a one of representation. It's of resemblance that they can call Father, uh, God their Father because God is their Father. And because God is their Father, they now begin to love in a way that resembles God their Father. It's very important that you understand this. This is a like Father, like Son thing. And we should also appropriately say like daughter, daughters of the Father. It's about representation. It's about mimicking. It's about resemblance, right? A hyper-social child is clearly my child. 
resemblance. Right? This is, this is for you, babe. Hardworking, caring is clearly a child of Doreen's. Right? Because, you know, I didn't read a book till seminary, right? I mean, it's just the way it is. Right? And I still, like, they might just be decor. I don't know. Um, here's one for Jer, right? Strong, agile wrestlers. Child of Jeremy Callie. Like father, like son. Like parent, like child. Resemblance. As they act in a particular way, they resemble us. They represent us. Parents, you understand that. And what a joy it is in parenting. Man, I remember as a kid, someone was copying me. I wanted to punch him in the face. Right? Like, stop copying me. And I'm sure as I was running around with Jeremy Callie and all those guys, my older brothers in youth group just copycatting them, that's probably why they beat me up so much. Because I was so annoying copying them. But man, when you're a parent, And you see the resemblance of who you are in them. It's a beautiful thing. And I would say even more so when you see the resemblance of your spouse in them. Now granted, some things are sad because as a parent you begin to see sin that resembles yours in your kids as well. Oh brother, who taught him that? It was me again. Right? So like there's a sadness there. But there's such a joy to see the resemblance in our children. And so what Jesus is saying is, is that you make a, as you make a decision, a commitment of your will to bring good and blessing to our enemies, you resemble the love of the Father. You're loving as the Father has loved. Amen? Right? I, I'm trying to speed this up a little bit as time is running short. Look. Look at what he says. For he makes his sun rise on evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. That's what God does. He provides rain and sun to all of his creation. He doesn't discriminate in distributing his common grace, his goodness to all of his creation. Amen? That's what the Father is like. And when we do that, when we uh, show love even to our enemies, we're representing and resembling the love of the Father. But I think even more so, we see this and understand this in the work of Christ. His death and, 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 and his sacrifice for us, don't we? That what we see in the love of Jesus is a love of the Father that extends to his enemies. And the most shocking and scandalous part of understanding the nature of the love of God the Father is understanding that it was given to us. That at one point, prior to coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus, we were enemies of God in our sin. And that we were undeserved recipients of all of His love. Undeserved recipients of His love. Romans 5 tells us that. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for who? The ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him. Uh, We must be saved 
by him from the wrath of God. For while we were, what? Enemies. And Brandon already read that in the assurance of pardon. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You see, that is the defining characteristic of the love of God. It's a love for enemies. It doesn't just uh, love those who are lovely or lovable, but the opposite. That the nature of the gospel is that his love extended to us even when we were enemies. When we were living in hostility and estranged from God, God did what was necessary to bring us back into relationship with him. That's reconciliation. So it is in Christ, by faith, that we can say we're at peace with God. That we are no longer enemies, but we are now sons of the Father. That is the love of the Father. That is a supernatural love. It is an uncommon love. It is a typical love. It is a love that this world and culture does not understand apart from the hearing of the gospel. It's distinct. It's otherworldly. And as we love our enemies, we love like the Father. We resemble the Father. What, what an opportunity we have. What a testimony to what the saving work of God does in us, not just for us. That we don't just receive this love, but we begin to uh, give this particular love in a world that so desperately needs this kind of love. A love for enemies. The seeking of good and blessing for those who seek to do us harm. It's supernatural. It's distinct. It's otherworldly. It's a love that we desperately need. And as we love our enemies, we love like God our Father. And this is a call beyond the natural responses, right? If you love those that love you, he says, what reward is that? Even the tax collectors do that. By the way, they were the worst of the worst. In that day. The worst of the worst. They were really their enemies. The tax collectors. The ones that extorted money from them. Exorbitant amounts. To fill their own pockets. To oppress people. Who were just trying to put food on the table. The tax collectors. If you love those that love you. Aren't you just like them? If you only greet your brothers. In a, in a greeting there's, there's blessing. right? Uh, when you grace to you in peace. There's blessing in, this, in a greeting then. We say like, yo, what up, dog? There's no blessing in that. Hey, man, how are you, man? There's no blessing in that. When they greeted one another, there was grace and peace to you. There was uh, blessing given. If you just give blessing in a greeting to, to just your brothers, what good is that? You're just like the Gentiles. Just like pagans. And you see that what Jesus is getting at here in calling his disciples, the citizens of the kingdom, when he's getting at the surpassing righteousness, he's saying, listen, you've got to be like my father. And as a child of the father, you have an opportunity and a calling and a responsibility now to treat others around you in a way that resembles and images and imitates the love of the Father in this world that desperately needs it, right? Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God 
as what? Dearly loved children. And live a life of love as Christ loved us and gave himself up as an atoning sacrifice to God. We're imitators, like father, like children. And as we love our enemies, we put on display for the world a love that they simply cannot understand because it's not in them. And yet, by a work of God's grace, God put it in us, the citizens of the kingdom. And we do not say that with pride, but all the more we come with humility, understanding, wow, this was a work, an undeserved, unmerited work of God to dispense that kind of love into our hearts. A love that put the spirit of sonship into us, whereby we cry out, Abba, Father. And now, as those who are filled with the spirit, we no longer live like the culture. We no longer love like the culture, but we love and live in a resemblance and representation of our Father in heaven. And then verse 48. Just when we thought the standard couldn't be higher. Verse 48 says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. There's got to be a caveat, right? Perfect, you mean mature, right? That's what it means. It must be maturing. Those are true things. But no, the standard is set. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So you go back to verse 20. Your your, uh, righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, or you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now you see it comes to a climactic, magnifying moment in this section. You must be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Absolute moral perfection is absolutely necessary for the kingdom of God. That's a high standard, and it's a command. And you saw it in Leviticus 19 as well, where he instructs them to love neighbor. At the beginning of that passage, what does he say? Be holy, for I am holy. That that is the expectation. That is the necessary requirement for living in the kingdom, is that we would be perfect, just like our Heavenly Father is perfect, that there's a call to pursue perfection and holiness, that, that, that grace does not bring about the accommodation of sin, and that we're, it's all, all is okay because we're not perfect. That's a major problem, that saving grace is doing a work and will complete a work That will bring about our perfection, a perfection that is consistent with the perfection of the Father in heaven. That is a high calling, a high standard. There can be no higher standard. And it's also a summary of all that is being taught here. That your superficial righteousness is insufficient. Don't believe the Pharisees and the scribes. The superficial, religious, I checked the box, Righteousness 
is insufficient. It must be characteristic of the Heavenly Father. This is everything for the people of God. That we would be like Him in all aspects. And again, I feel such a gap here. I feel so far from that calling. Now I look back and I say, okay, the Lord has been at work. I've surely, uh, His perfection is being nurtured and applied to my life. But man, I feel so far. I've been a Christian for 33 years, and I feel so far from this idea of perfection. Raise your hand if you feel far from perfection. You feel the gospel gap right now. That's what you feel. You feel the more that you know the perfection and the beauty and the, and the majesty of Jesus, man, the more holy and perfect and amazing he seems, and the more broken and sinful you might feel as you gaze upon his beauty. He seems higher and more wonderful and more holy than he ever did. That's what you get in this moment. But here's the wonderful truth. As you sense that gap, understand that the provision has been made. And yes, this is a calling, but it is also something that God will bring about. It's something that he is doing in us, not just on the outside, in our hearts, by the work of Christ, by the work of his spirit. He is doing this, and these qualities are ours in increasing measure. And so while you feel so far, feel fathered right now. God has done all that is necessary to bring you there. And as Sinclair Ferguson said in his sermon on this passage, which really, if you want to just relax, listen to him. If you want to like feel like you've been on a motorcycle ride for 45 minutes without a helmet, listen to my sermon. Okay? Just a little something. Understand that the Father will seek nothing less than your perfection. Do you know He's doing that? And that's why Christ died, that you might be like Him, that He might conform you to the image of the Son, which is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, Hebrews chapter 1. That's what God is doing in your life right now. That's what he's doing. He's making this real and true. As far as you feel from that moment, feel fathered. Sense his father. Know his promise. Trust in the process. That's what God's going to do. But I think... It's, an impl- it's a call for us to pursue that very thing in our lives. It's not passive. It's our active pursuing this. And that means loving our enemies. Kevin DeYoung says, There are two difficult realities you must accept if you're to live faithfully as a Christian in the world. One, you will have enemies. And we see that more and more. The marginalization of the Christian witness. Don't be shocked by it in the days to come. You will have enemies in this world. Number two, you must love those enemies. Jesus taught both things quite clearly. And so who will you start loving today? 
Because my prayer in this is not that this would be conceptual, but that this would be very real in your heart. Who will you, by the power of the Spirit, shift in the way that you approach that relationship? Who is it that you will now approach with a sense of decision and commitment to bring about their good and blessing? How will this change the way you engage people that disagree with you? Who will you start praying for today rather than praying against? I trust the Spirit will reveal this in His perfect way and timing. Whatever the case may be, understand this, that as we love our enemies, we live and love like God our Father. That's who He is. That's who we are. And that's what the world needs. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray right now that your spirit would be at work in our hearts, applying the truth of this word. I pray that you would soften us. Our hearts can be so hard. I pray that you'd soften us. I pray against vengeance. In our hearts, bitterness, unforgiveness. I pray that you would give us the grace needed to be a witness to your love in North Syracuse, Onondaga County, and beyond. That the love of the Father and the death of the Son would be proclaimed, celebrated, and exemplified in the way that we live as a church. Father, be at work in these people here. God, we pray for our brothers and sisters at the Syracuse Nepali Church. We thank you for Beam, his evangelistic fervor, his perseverance. This is all a sign of your grace and your goodness toward their congregation and this community. Father, give them all that they need. I pray that if there's anybody here or listening in that is hurting or is in need of a special touch from your hand, God, I pray that you would move in their hearts. I pray that in this particular season that it's difficult, Lord, we pray that you would continue to keep and hold your people. If there's anyone that is drifting in any way, shape, or form, from the sound doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ, pray that you would bring them back and keep them in the fold. Lord, I pray that you would just simply continue to be at work, bring about your purposes in our perfection. To you be the glory. And all God's people said, Amen.